just in case you want to know the time for that, it's at 6.30. I totally nailed it. Where's Evelyn? Evelyn, 6.30. But the first part of it, I've been told, is like a, like a large group workout. I'm serious. And then, yeah, so come at 7 if you don't want to work out. All right, everybody, good to see you. If you have a Bible, Luke 22. Or if you're just going to be lazy, it's on the screen. Luke 22. Hey, we're going to start there. Um, I want to do a little recap. We're in a series called Eating with Jesus. And uh, the first week we talked about eating with people um, far from um, society or like on the fringes or or as Jesus called them, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and, and, and eating with people far from God and what that looks like. Then we talked about what it looks like to eat together as a community and to be intentional, intentional about that, to gather in community, to break bread together, to be with each other. Last week, Dan did a really cool job of talking about celebration and in the, the between the kingdom, the here on earth, and then the kingdom. There's all these different things that we can be intentional about, whether it's uh, mourning or celebrating or resisting. Oh, there's just so much. And so I would encourage you to get back on the podcast and check that out. But I would, I would just like to focus your idea, your mind's eye on the idea of eating and drinking and the, and the idea that it is uh, something we look forward to that you, we look forward to time with friends and we look forward to time like special meals and things like that. We actually also around our meals are um, potential social standing uh, episodes, meaning maybe you're on a business deal or maybe you're trying to impress people or maybe you're trying to, you're on a, a first date and, and there's, there's all these uh, parts of life that surround meals. And we have the desire, I think, as, as human beings, not just to fuel ourselves. Uh, I mean, I don't know too many people that just do an, an IV drip, you know, into their body to get the nourishment they need. That would be gross. Um, but that, that would be the efficient way to do it. I mean, there's so much more that goes into meals than just getting what we need, um, we crave what the writers of the New Testament call communion. Communion with God, communion with others. We crave that. And uh, I think that we can admit that our ache for communion with God and with others actually goes wrong constantly. It actually gets sideways. Um, I mean, we can, I mean, the list goes on and on from addiction to misappropriated identity, to abuse of food, to eating disorders, to abuse of alcohol, to projecting an image um, uh, of who we want to be around others, around the table, instead of being authentic and genuine and, and feeling safe. There's a whole host of missteps for the quest for real communion in our lives. And and I would, I would say, I would actually make the claim that food is at the root of all that's wrong in our world and all that's right in our world. Like if it's not the root, it's near the root. And, and I think that, um, well, for instance, here's some stats. 
Americans, I read this the other day, Americans spend $50 billion on dieting to solve the issue of food gone wrong. $50 billion on dieting. And, And I read this stat, and this really made me sad. American Christians spend more on dieting than on world missions. And that's like a sobering thing. And so you're all going to go sign up for the global 6K now because you feel guilty. Um, we, we throw away $1,500 a year on food, the average American household. And so there, there's this idea, and I know some people do this, I don't do it, but eating for comfort, <laughs> right? Like, I don't, I know, I've heard of it. Um, but, but more than like an individualized thing, we in our society, we struggle with things like government subsidies and, and, and industrialized farming and food deserts and animal cruelty and all these things that go in. I mean, you could watch a Netflix documentary this afternoon that'll make you angry about chickens and pigs and whatever going on. Should I be a vegan? No, you shouldn't. You know, there's documentaries on everything. So like this whole idea of food in our lives and, and none of it comes as a surprise because we know the picture. We know the story of scripture. We know that the, in the, the first sin in the garden is actually not a power thing or a status thing. It's actually a food thing. It's actually a uh, eating from the wrong tree thing. And at the same time, food is at the heart of all that's good in the world and, and beautiful and true in the world. And remember the stats we talked about a couple of weeks ago that, that social, sociologists and actual uh, brain scientists are actually seeing the effects of that the happiest people are are when they are at a table around the food with family and friends. And all that is right and all that is wrong tend to meet at the table. And so the question is, is there a practice from Jesus that will, in a sense, quench this ache and that we have for a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other? And I'm glad you asked. But you didn't, but you did. And that is what we call communion. And we call it a bunch of other things too. But let's just jump into this. Meal with Jesus in Luke 22. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, where the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this 
and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is, is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays me. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. It's like, okay, not a good time, fellas. Like social awareness. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Just so much here. And so much we can't get into. It's just a powerful imagery all the way through. But I want to look at this well-known line, do this in remembrance of me. And I want to argue that this line is probably one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied verses in Scripture. And the reason why I say that, I think we get two things, we, two things we need to get our head around. And these are uh, some of the words that we're going to see in here is uh, the pronoun uh, this, uh, sorry, the preposition this doesn't refer to the bread and the cup. When Jesus is talking, he's like, do this. He's not talking about some crackers and some juice. Uh, Jesus is actually referring to the whole meal together. That's what he's referring to. He's like, do this. Do this, um, and, he's, and he's pointing back to this idea that he sent them to make preparations. There was a whole lot of work that went into it. There was some intentionality. There was the purpose of gathering together. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the second thing is that phrase, in remembrance of me, is, it's a qualifier. It's not saying, um, not in memory of me, He's like, but actualized awareness of me. Meaning, to Jesus, this moment was, is times all mashed up in this moment. And if you look, uh, if we, we have time to study this deeper, we're looking backward not only to Jesus' life, okay? But we're looking in our mind and in our body, in our mind and our body, in the community and the presence we have now, and then looking forward to his return. I mean, all the prophets, including uh, John, um, Gospel John, he, they envision the future as a meal around a table. 
That's like, uh, Dan was talking about this last week, this idea of a celebration, like a, a banquet feast, a messianic banquet. It's all through the prophets, all through the gospels. Listen to this quote from a guy named N.T. Wright, scholar. He says, the hardest thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not mean merely bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bringing the past, that past story and divine action of the past into the present such that the present audience becomes a part of the story and receives the benefit from such actualization. I love that word actualization because it's like this idea to remember doesn't mean to just recall from memory. It actually means to, to bring the past into the present. Um, this is a clumsy analogy, but I'm going to go for it. When I was teaching, when we were teaching our kids how to drive, and if you've done this before, it's super, super, super exciting. But you're always driving on the road. Now, remember, now you're saying things like, now, remember, signal. Um, but, Dad, you don't signal. Shut up. You signal. Um, and you just say, remember, when you're doing this, think this. Remember, there's two turn lanes. Okay? Remember, which lane do you go in if you're in this lane? You know, that kind of stuff. And, and the reason why we say the word remember isn't so that you would just recall from memory, memory and then do whatever you want. No, the, the reason is, is that you would actually bring that um, from the past, that, that knowledge of the past into the present and make it part of the present, right? So you actually do turn into the right turn lane. It's really important to do that. So that the future isn't you in the hospital, Right? So past, present, future. It's like totally clumsy analogy. But I mean, it even happened last night. My son's coming home really late. He had a sound gig on the other side of town. I mean, really late, early this morning. And um, I can't sleep. I'm waiting. You know, I, he's like, Dad, I'm on my way. I said, Remember, keep an eye out for drunks. You know, I don't know what that means, you know, but it's like, you know, if someone's swerving, just like, you know, I guess keep an eye out for him, you know, but like, but I'm a dad. So I have to say stuff like this. And then I said, and don't speed too much because he, he's, he's fast. And he, he texts back to me, I'm going to outrun the cops. <laughs> so I know he got the message. So, so the idea is this, like bringing the past into the present and bringing the future expectation into the present. And, and, and that's what this remembrance, this memorial, that's what this means. And so there's like six names in that we use in our common, you know, life, um, as followers of Jesus, um, five of them come from scripture. One comes from church history. We're going to really quick go through them because I think the outcome of this is going to change not only how you see com communion, but how we practice it. You, you game for this? The first word is communion. <laughs> I know, spoiler. That's the one we use. I mean, it's the one we're used to using. It comes, um, it's probably the most common. 
It comes from the Greek word koinonia, is where we get it, um, which means community. It also means different ways of putting it together. Uh, fellowship, participation, sharing. Uh, we see this all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, uh, verse 16, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And here's the imagery. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body for we, are all, we all share one loaf. And so the idea behind this is a community coming together around the table, sharing. Our Anglican brothers and sisters call it Holy Communion, as if to say, this meal is not ordinary. Uh, there's something special about it. Uh, and this idea of remembering or actualizing that we are to commune with Jesus, that we're there to commune with Jesus and each other, that it's not just an individual thing, that we come together um, as a community to commune with Jesus. And the whole point is to actualize Jesus's presence as you eat and drink, giving our full attention um, and, our, um, and our presence. We're actually present to Jesus. A guy named David Fitch wrote, wrote this. There's going to be a few quotes today, so get ready for that. <laughs> he says, the Lord's table is about presence. Surely it is about eating, but ultimately it's a discipline that shapes a group of people to be present to God's presence in Christ around a table. Here we have perhaps the single best opportunity to train ourselves, you know, this idea of practice, to train ourselves to tend to the presence, to his presence for our lives. If we can recognize his presence at work around the table, we will be able to recognize his work in our lives as well. Without such a discipline, however, we will always be tempted to take God's work into our own hands instead of recognizing his work submitting to it and participating in it. The table trains us to discern Christ's presences in all the other places we eat during the week. It's really powerful. So it's about communion with Jesus and communion with each other. And we enjoy Jesus's company and his presence in and through each other. And we're present for each other. And we put away our phones and we put away our agendas and we are there for each other. The second word, the second phrase that we get from scripture is called the breaking of bread. This is the author Luke's favorite. He uses this all the time, not necessarily as a title, but as, a, as an action. For instance, in uh, Luke, we read, and he took bread and gave thanks. This is the passage we just read, Luke 22. Gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in Acts 2, we get this idea that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Um, and so if you've ever been confused, is it, is it, are, they, are they doing communion or are they having a meal together? Have you, have you ever been confused by that? Or is it just me? It's actually both. It's both and. There's a meal and, and there's moment together. And the bread, just so we're clear, bread was a 
of the diet of the first century Christians. Um, and, and what you would do is you would pass the bread. There wasn't like Cutco knives and things like that. You would pass the bread, tear it. You would tear off a piece, pass it to the next person. You do it with your bare hands. And, and the image here and the, the symbol is Jesus's body torn apart and handed out to us. And so in the breaking of the bread, we're to remember that all life really comes from death, that, that, that something, that somebody died for you. And food is a, really a daily reminder of this. Uh, whether you're plant-based or, or what, he, something dies for you. Something dies that you might consume it and live. And it's this really tangible example of sacrifice and dependence in our lives. This idea of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It's not just a sign, but it's actuality. Another, another um, word we use, and, and depending on your tradition, this might become, this is probably more familiar, is the Eucharist. The Eucharist. It's actually a Greek word, Eucharisto. It actually means the Thanksgiving meal. Um, and this is where the same passage, it says, he took bread and gave thanks um, and so it's this idea of remembering to give thanks and all that we enjoy with God it comes from God and it's a gift and it's all grace. And, and, and it's, it's this process of indexing our heart towards thanksgiving, not only for the things that we have in this world, but ultimately for uh, the sacrifice of Jesus for us. The fourth one that we, um, I know we're kind of flying through these, but there's a lot. The fourth one is the agape feast. We talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. Um, agape is a word for love. So this is the love feast. This, if you were here a few weeks ago, it sounds very 1960s San Francisco. I get it. Um, but um, it actually only comes up one time in scripture. But what's interesting is all the church fathers use this term. So if you read early church fathers and early church writings, you'll see the agape feast all throughout it. But the only place it comes up is actually in the book of Jude. In Jude uh, verse 12, it says, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. So there's like obviously something going on there. But this idea that... Um, this, this idea, a love feast is like a party, a celebration, this idea that, that we come to this not in somber, sober, uh, down on ourselves ways, but we actually come with this idea of celebration. That you come uh, to the love feast ready to celebrate. Anthropologists say that in every single culture uh, that has been recorded, uh, every single culture, people celebrate around meals. Every single culture. Now, it might be people who are eating each other, but they're still celebrating, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> bring out the big guy, you know? But the idea is there's still a celebration. I shouldn't have put that in there. It's still a celebration around meals, right? And whether it's a birthday, and think about the birthday. This is another time indexing thing. When we celebrate someone's birthday, 
We're celebrating the day they were born and how thankful we are for the past. We're celebrating for being with them and being in the presence, in their presence. And we're actually celebrating what will happen for them in the future all at once. And then we eat carbs and sugar. <laughs> I don't know why, but we do. But it, like we mash it all together, right? It's, an, it's, it's, it's what we do. So when this love feast turns into something not celebratory, it becomes a sober, somber, introspective, individualized practice. What went wrong, right? I mean, for Paul, he had a problem with people getting drunk at the love feast. Like if you read Corinthians, we were in that last year, um, there was, they were getting hammered at the love feast. Well, we've sure taken care of that, haven't we? Because there's just a, I mean, you dip it here. So, and there is real wine, but I'm not sure you're going to get drunk off that. Um, so we've really taken care of that drunk problem. But there is a time for being quiet and introspective to work over and to think through your sin and its cost to Jesus. But we're to do that before we come to the table. We're to do that before we show up to the love feast. First Corinthians 11 says this, everyone ought to examine themselves. Okay, there's that idea of introspection. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it's, it's not in root. He, he wasn't like, in Paul's mind, it wasn't. Uh, so when people get up from their seat facing a stage, they should, they should work out that stuff before they get to the table. That's not what Paul was thinking. It's actually before you show up. The table then becomes, comes after. The table then becomes a celebration, right? Because you've made, you've made reconciliation with the people in your life. You, you, you've seen your sin. You've been forgiven for your sin. There's such joy. They're celebrating that, that, that I'm righteous. I'm right with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And, and I'm right with people in my family and in my life and in my work and in my church. And I'm right with people. And we're going to show up at the table. And we're going to celebrate. Philip Yancey, um, if you never read Philip Yancey, okay, get on it. He says, this table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the tables, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups, he's making fun of little communion cups, high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers and sisters alive. Right? That's it. That's what it's all about. That's the love feast. And then there's this fifth version in scripture that we, it's very, very common. It's called the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians 11 um, unpacks this quite a bit. Verse 20, it says, so then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. 
As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Remember that whole drunk problem? Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating others who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So this idea of the Lord's Supper, it would meet, uh, people would meet on a Sunday night. Um, they would come together for dinner. They would call it the Jesus dinner, the Lord's Supper, the, uh, the love feast. It was the center of life for the church. And, and they wouldn't come primarily to sing and listen to somebody talk. They primarily came to eat together. That's the primary thing. And, and the backstory here is really big, and we're going to get into it in a few weeks. It's the covenantal meal. This idea that if you were to jump into a covenant with somebody in the ancient Near East, this is Old Testament stuff, that you would actually uh, form a covenant around a meal. And in their minds, this is what Jesus and Paul are actually enacting, a covenantal meal. That this meal... T- as a community, is actually an act of commitment together as a community. That we actually come together for the Lord's Supper. The, the Lord's Supper in this mindset is actually a covenantal meal. It's an act of commitment for the whole community where you would all, we would all leave behind our sin and, and, and re, re, um, uh, recommit our allegiance right to Jesus. A guy named John Mark Hicks says this, When we eat and drink, we renew our covenant with God. We pledge ourselves to keep the covenant. It is a moment of rededication and recommitment. In the context of the worship experience, we voice our commitment to live worthy of the gospel. He gets that out of 1 Corinthians 11. We vow to take up our cross, call Jesus Lord, and follow him into the world as obedient servants. The supper is the ritual moment when we renew the covenant vow we made in our baptism. And, it, and I think it's one of these things where Paul is, is kind of pressing in on the people um, in Corinthians because Paul talks about this idea of being a need to be worthy to come to the table. He's not saying you need to be worthy to come to the table. He's saying there's no way you can be worthy to come to the table. And recognizing our unworthiness, there's, a, there's like a gravity to it. So on the one hand, there's this, it's, it's this beautiful mystery, like there's celebration at the table, and yet there's seriousness, right? There's celebration and seriousness. There's, there's this reality where we come face to face with Jesus, that we honor the table, we honor the body and the blood and the, blood and the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, and yet it's such a joyful, full experience where we pledge our allegiance again to Jesus. And the reality is, I don't know if this is the way for you as it is for me, but there's this constant tension in my life between the vision of human flourishing that I come up with and the vision of human flourishing that Jesus gives. And I'm always wrestling with that in my life. And the table is where we make commitments again to Jesus and his version of human flourishing. Um, and so we're, we're all same with the, faced with the same temptations over, over again to redefine good and evil in our lives, to, to, to really make the question, okay, does sin really lead to uh, a non-flourishing life or does obedience to Jesus really lead to a flourishing life? And, and there's this beautiful weight to this moment 
where we come together and we're invited to recommit and not in a flippant way or a cavalier way, but there's just like this beautiful heavy weight that we experience in this mystery together. And the backstory to what Paul was talking about is also there's a lot of injustice because the meal, the covenant, this, this Lord's Supper, this Sunday night gathering love feast was actually um, in, in Greco-Roman culture, um, a normal uh, dinner gathering. If you threw a dinner party, it was part of the cultural architecture of the society. It was called a convivia. In a convivia, what would happen is, is the wealthy and the slaves would both eat in separate rooms, two different rooms. And then after dinner, um, became kind of more of a drinking party. And in this drinking party, the women left, and then the slaves came in to where the men were. And I'm not going to go into all that. But there was just some, I mean, it was the cultural thing in the Corinthian world. And the wealthy, so when you... When you start to do the love feast and, and, and this, uh, the Lord's Supper together as different people mashed together, slaves and free, Greek and Jew and male and female and wealthy and poor, and it's all mashed together on a Sunday night gathering around the table, around food. This is what began to happen. What began to happen is the wealthy, since they weren't working, would get started early. They'd get started early. They would start drinking early. They'd start eating early. And by the time the working slaves showed up to be a part of their church community, it was all gone. And so what you have with that is not only like a racial injustice, but you have economic injustice. You have just things that are backwards, things that were not intended by Jesus or by Paul. And so Paul is super angry about it. See, the Lord's Supper was actually an act of equality and inclusion with the poor. It wasn't about, they weren't waiting for, I, I, I hope that uh, this new Caesar will do more for the poor. Uh, no one did that. Like the government did not help the poor. There were no NGOs. There was none of that. It was the church gathered around the table serving each other. And then the last picture we get doesn't come from scripture, but it comes from church history and it's called the mass. Now, if you've grown up, some of us um, have grown up in different churches. This is kind of a big tent of people, meaning some of you never grew up in church. Some of you grew up in more high church, liturgical churches. Some of you, um, you, you just, all you know is this church. But the mass uh, is not something that shows up in the New Testament. It's actually in the, in the Middle Ages. It comes from the Latin. Uh, the phrase is ita missa est, which that phrase means go, you are sent. Meaning at the end of gatherings, the, the, the mass, that, that line was said, ita missa est, go, you are sent. Isn't that beautiful? Go, you are sent. And over time and over language changes and barriers, um, the slang of it turns into from ita missa s to the mass. Make sense? 
And so, and, and everything changes over time. But the idea behind this was Jesus broke himself open, poured himself out for our world, and then asks us to do the same. Ita Mesa asked, go, you are sent out. You are sent out now to break yourself open and to pour yourself out for the world. Now, here's the thing. There's a transition here that I want to make because all five or six of these all envision the practice as a meal around a table, not a cracker and juice thing, but a, not, an eat and drink thing, not a taste and sip thing. Okay? And no doubt, for hundreds of years, we know at the beginning of church history, it was this. It was a meal around a table in a home. How did the meal around a table in a home become in front of a stage with little sips and dips? How did that happen? I'm glad you asked. You guys are really asking good questions today. Um, if someone was to say to you, like me, or someone in your life, say someone, a friend of yours said, hey, text me a picture of your church. What would you send them? I mean, it's just a little thought experience. What would you send them? I, I think that some of you would probably, maybe you would say, well, I guess I could take a picture of the Arvada Center. That'd be weird, but yeah, I mean, we meet here. So maybe you take a picture of a building. Maybe you take a picture of this um, and don't take a picture of me because you want them to come, but they take a picture of like the singing. Maybe you take a picture of the kids playing. What's interesting is the earliest picture we have of a church gathering is actually a picture that was uh, scribed into the wall of a catacomb underneath Rome. And um, this picture is called the Fractio Panis Fresco. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. Do we have that? The Fractio Panis Fresco. This is like one tens. We're talking very early on in the life of the church. And it's kind of fuzzy and kind of hazy, but you can kind of see a few things here. Um, First of all, you have people kind of, you can tell the people, there are seven people, they're facing each other. They're around a table. You can see the table. And on the table, it's actually clear um, in different versions, but you actually have a chalice down here of wine. You have bread over here, and then you have fish in the middle. And this is the idea in their mind's eye of what a church was. A group of people gathered around a table, around a meal, celebrating the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is how people thought of church for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And, and here's the thing, a little quick backstory. There's a timeline here. Then we get to Constantine. And in Constantine's um, age, there was a tipping point. Constantine makes Christianity legal. He does something very political. He realizes that most of the people in Rome are Christians or a, at least a, about a half of them. And so he kind of moves his, his uh, thoughts towards uh, the Christian world. And, and a lot went wrong at this point. Um, 364, the Council of Laodicea. Uh, this is where they forbade the love feast 
the council forbade the love feast um, on a church property on site, meaning at this point, the church had actually moved into some basilicas and some, um, some actual larger gathering spots that were used for temple worship of Zeus or whatever. They reformatted these places of worship to be about uh, Jesus and God. And they, they decided to, they forbade the love feast on site and they said it had to be done off site. 692, the Council of Trulian actually banned the love feast, actually banned it altogether. And I think this was a tragic moment. And so some of you are probably like, man, this stuff's so boring. And it is. But to some of us, <laughs> but some of us is really interesting. Here's what's really crazy. A lot of us go, we look back and go, see, we totally lost it. We totally lost everything about the early church and um, the church is corrupt. Um, but there were some reasons for the shift. Um, obviously, there's practical ones. Uh, when the church is smaller, uh, it's one thing to feed 20 to 30. It's a little harder to feed thousands of people. And so we see this actually in Acts in the early church in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. that actually says they met in the temple courts and they broke bread together in homes. So they had this dual functionality going. They met together as a large group and then they practiced eating together weekly, daily even, together in homes, okay? So there's the practical side of it. There's the pastoral side of it. Jesus was amazing at eating and drinking with anyone. He was, he was welcoming anybody at the table. And initially the love feasts were very socially porous, meaning so many people could come to the love feast, but they became really rife for abuse, meaning people started showing up with agendas and false teachers and things like that. So on a pastoral side, they had to shut down these love feasts because they, who knows what was happening at them. In fact, pastors today, we still get together and go, hey, how do you do small groups? Do you just let people do whatever they want? Just read every version of scripture they want or do whatever they want? Do you, that, you know, there's just like this, I don't know, what do you do? And there's like this kind of fear, like how are we shepherding? people well. And then the third one is theological. And this is the really important one. Somewhere along the way, Platonic Greek philosophy mixed in with theology. And we get this stuff I'm not going to get into, but substantia and accidentia and all this kind of stuff. And it gets to this zenith of corruption in the practice of communion in the 14th century. And this was a huge low in the history of the church and the worst of the worst. Basically, this is when um, communion was done in, in Latin. The mass was done in Latin and no one spoke Latin. So no one knew what was going on. And it was done by a priest um, who was behind a screen and he was facing away from the people and he was the only one to actually take the bread. And it became this weird kind of magical, mystical moment thing that got totally, totally away from what the original intent was. And then we get the Reformation and the Reformers. And you guys are like, when is this going to end? It's going to end shortly. Hold on. So then we get the Reformation, we get the Reformers, we get these really, really brave uh, people. We got Luther in Germany, Tyndale in England, Calvin in France and Switzerland. And they had their own issues as Reformers. We're not going to get into that. But the main thing that sparked it was the corruption of the practice of the Lord's Supper. That was the main thing that sparked it. And so you have these brilliant, courageous men and women that actually push against, okay, this, this current version of the Lord's Supper. But here's the problem. 
The reformers did a lot of work in regards to theology, but they did no work in regards to practice. So Luther still practiced the same way. And there was the practice was the same. And so the orthodoxy changed, but the practice stayed the same. And, and you have very few, uh, particularly, in, in, there's like the, this thing called the Anabaptist tradition. I won't get into this uh, necessarily, but the, the Moravians in 1450, Bohemia, that's kind of where our church roots come out of the Moravians a little bit. Uh, you got the Moravians and you've got the Brethren and you got the Quakers. Anybody familiar with the Quakers? The Quakers actually, we're practicing communion with the Quakers on Friday. Neighborhood Friends is a Quaker church and we're going to practice communion with them. The, the Quakers actually believe that every meal gathered together with the body of Christ is communion. That's what they actually believe and practice. And so the interesting thing is that this idea of gathering together is always on the fringe, not at the center. And personally, I just need, you need to understand where I'm from. Um, I never even knew that it was supposed to be a meal around the table. I didn't know that. I grew up in the Episcopal church as a young kid. Um, and then we went to a, a covenant church later on. And, and the Episcopal church, you'd cruise up there crews up there. You'd, you'd be uh, ushered to the front. They would line you up, kneeling down. The priests would walk by. You'd, get, you'd stick your tongue out. They'd put the thing on the tongue, you know, the little wafer thing. Anybody do that? You know what I'm talking about? And then the guy would come with the wine. And as a kid, I'm like, yeah. And, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? You would drink it after the whoever was on your right or left, I forget which way they went, and then they would wipe it, right? And you're like, really? Was that enough wipe? And I remember as a kid, I, they, they turned and like he turned, he wiped it and he turned it and there was a big old lipstick deal right there, like coming right at me. Like, I'm like, oh, you know, and what do you do? You're a kid. You can't jack up communion. Anyhow, I don't know why I told that story. I told that story because there's been a lot in me that has been wrestling and changing. And it goes back to this last series we did in Corinthians. When I, when I dig into this and I go, this meal with Jesus, the meal with Jesus, it was a raucous party of joy and grace mixed with a recommitment to apprenticing Jesus, mixed with an act of social justice for the poor, mixed with a call to break your life open and to pour it out into the world. And you know what I think? The more I've been wrestling with this, the original practice of communion is not congruent with how we practice it here at restoration. Just being honest. It's messing with me. And it started, like I said, this last summer, fall. So what do we do? Well, there's, there's, there's long-term version and there's short-term version. The long-term version is my dream is that we would be like the Jerusalem church where we would gather intentionally committed 
gather in groups and communities in houses and begin to do life together in a way that celebrated the Lord's Supper together weekly. That's my dream for us. It's not going to happen next week, but I want it to happen. And the other thing is, is that I just want us to have a fuller understanding that when we do gather together and we do come up here and partake in communion together, that we would have a bigger, fuller, richer idea and understanding of what it means. Our dream is for you to be in a relationship with Jesus and each other that changes the world, right? That doesn't just fulfill whatever individualistic need you have, but that actually has a way of breaking your life open and pouring it out to the world. And if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, Jesus wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you so bad that he left his, he left his godness to become human, to live uh, in your shoes and to your world, to, to fully relate to you, to become a uh, sin that you would be um, made right, made right with him and, and have a relationship brought back with him, that you would be fully alive, fully forgiven, living with hope for the future. That's what Jesus wants. That's what a relationship with Jesus is. And that's what we celebrate together when we come to the table. So we're going to come to the table. But Ryan, you said this isn't really how it's supposed to go. Yeah, I know. A little grace today. We're going to come to the table and participate in something that's a mystery, but it's a pointer to what a full meal, what a, what a full meal life with Jesus should be. Okay? So I'm going to pray and Dan's going to lead us.